cliffcentral.com. Okay, it is Tuesday and we're already almost at the end of January. We have Jack Mutlante on the show this morning. And of course, it's Democracy 101, which is our opportunity to catch up with some very, very pertinent and useful information around the elections, which take place, of course, this year. That's the big story everyone's going to be talking about yep. heading all the way to May. Well, they say it's going to happen in May, but we'll wait and see. So one of the things that um, I'm always excited to do is to speak to, and you don't need an excuse, really, but they've published a whole bunch of research, which makes this very timeless. But Dr. Franz Cronier, who's with the Social Research Foundation, they are a South African think tank established in 2021 to promote democracy and sound public policy. They do very interesting research, and they've been asking South African voters about political parties, the upcoming election, the future of the country, and so many other things. So let's welcome Dr. Franz Cronier. Hello, Franz. How are you? Gareth, very well. And you? Um, very and good. Well. Morning, morning, Franz. How are you? Very well. Nice to meet you. And Gareth, it's always wonderful to see you again. Good. Franz, I'm always amazed at the, the kind of on-the-ground research that you guys are able to publish. And um, I, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to see all of this stuff. There's some very interesting questions that you've asked of people. Um, it's always, before you launch into something like this, you always have to kind of create the caveat and you have to give people an idea of what the, the, the size of the sample was and how you did your research and all of that stuff because uh, people will inevitably want to poke holes in it and they also want to know how thorough it is. So do you want to just give us the background to the Social Research Foundation, what you guys do, where you're from, who it includes, what kind of people you ask questions of, just so we have some idea of the context for the the latest research you've just published. Yeah, if, you, if you've been following some of the American stuff, because they've got an election this year that's yes. even more exciting than ours, and you follow <laughs> that closely, you'll know that you can go to a, a whole range of American sources and you can find actual data in, in real time on yes. how various candidates are doing in various races. And if you've been following South African uh, political stuff for, for however long, you'll know that you, you can't really do the same thing and that a lot of what uh, passes as analysis here is is kind of the opinions of what are called political analysts. Yeah. And um, a while back, a, a group of, of people with real interest in where the country's going uh, thought that we can't continue like this and said to me, what could we do about it? And we created a small policy group, a research group, and what it does almost exclusively is it commissions um, research, polling-based research, into the opinions of South Africans. What are they mm -hmm. thinking about and how do they think? And the way that we do that is we do a survey. So we take a sample of, of people. We do it almost exclusively cell phone-based. Now, the surveys are created to make them uh, demographically, geographically, and socioeconomically representative of the population of the country. So that's how you select your sample. And then okay. we ask people a battery of questions. If we do a survey of about three and a half thousand people in SA, we come back with what's called a margin of error. And that is how uh, far off above or below the, the actual figure we think the survey results are. So at a hmm. survey size of three and a half thousand, we can get margins of error down to around 2%. So what that means is if we tell you, you know, party X is at 50%, 
we th- it could be 52 and it could be 48. Okay, if but that's a very that's a very yeah. that's a narrow margin of error. I mean, that's it's pretty useful because yeah. yeah, it's that, specific that, that, as hell. Yeah, that's very expensive to do that. If right. you take a sample size of let's say a thousand three hundred thousand four hundred, you get margins of error that approach four or five percent. So we'll do do a combination of both. So you'll mm-hmm. do these really big in depth ones, and then after that you can do some smaller sample surveys, and we'll often ask the same questions. And if we start to see that the answers on the smaller samples are diverging significantly, then we know Mm. it's time to go back into the field and do a big baseline. The other ways of doing it as well, and an amazing thing we're going to do for this election, is we're going to poll it every day, about six weeks before the date of the election. Every party, every province, and publish that data, and that that's going to become so precise when you do it that way, that we should, you know, way out from the actual day. The result should be absolutely nailed down. So that's how that's, done. Um, that's phenomenal. Yeah. I just I just want to ask you because you mentioned how in the U.S. they've been doing this for a long time, and 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 the the polls have you know these these opinion polls and exit polls and all the rest of them become a, like a cottage industry in America, and a lot of them. Are, are, are taken very seriously, but there was that famous occasion back in 2016 where all the polls were saying Hillary Clinton was going to dust the floor with Donald Trump, mm. and so many of them lost credibility. Um, it is a bit of a dangerous game to play with polls like this because if you get it wrong and your credibility is dashed, it's very, very difficult for all the polls, regardless of how qualitative and careful and methodical and specific they tend to be. All of them get tied with the same brush, and then people go, oh, you can't believe the polls. Look, polls in America are ranked by their accuracy historically, so so that's available. You can have a look at that. The 2016 date, a lot of the polls were right on what was happening in that race. And remember, those American races have become very, very close. It's a couple of, you know, 100 votes in a particular state uh, gives you the the electoral college uh, votes for that state and, and, and the implications for the outcome of the election. Also, when it comes to things like Mr. Trump, there's such absolute hysteria on the left side of the American media mm-hmm. that the idea is created um, often at odds with the data, that there's there's no way on earth. I mean, you, you, you see these on YouTube, you can still find them, these sort of MSNBC anchors saying, possible, never win. <laughs> this is why it's very good to go back to the data. And in America, if historically you've taken a cross-section of the data and understood how it's done, you would be very close to the results of those elections. And the same is historically true for research that's been done in South Africa, uh, poll-based election research. Okay, well, that's like a bit of a preamble, um, just so that people can, uh, you know, have some idea of how exactly you go about doing this. But the the questions that you've asked in this first batch of surveys, and I've seen some some really interesting stuff that people ask me about, and I say, look, I don't know, but you've been able to figure out the answers to those questions. So let's go through a couple of these things, and you can perhaps again give us the the background to where it comes from, and then tell us about the results. So. Apparently, you've looked at the Western Cape quite carefully, and I think that's an interesting place to look. 
What do they think of their DA government in the province? Do they think that the DA cares about them and their communities? Yeah. Look, what we try and understand more than you know what the election result is, which actually doesn't isn't our focus, is what motivates the voting behaviour of people. That now, because it happens yeah. to be an election year, but broadly after election years, what what motivates behaviour in the country and opinions, protest action, all, all that sort of thing. So, in the Western Cape, the DA is solidly consolidating its position. I'd thought mm -hmm. that we'd see what I call the coloured nationalist party starting to make a run into the DA ranks in the Western Cape. But we're not seeing that. Instead, we're seeing a variation. Is that like the Patriotic Alliance, for example? Yeah, it's like Gaten and his, and his PA. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a big personality. And, and he's actually, in, in, in my experience, a very capable political thinker. See what the on-the-ground mm -hmm. strategy is and how that translates. Mm -hmm. So I thought we were going right. to see inroads into DA support in the Western Cape. But we're not seeing that. We're seeing a variation on the theme, ballot splitting. In the province itself, the DA is stronger on the provincial ballot. Because remember, in an election, you vote on your provincial ballot and your national ballot. Whereas on the mm -hmm. national ballot, it's a little bit off the provincial score because of ballot splitting in favor of these colored nationalist parties. So the idea is, in the Western Cape, where I live, I'm not going to take a chance on on these new parties, I'm going to stick with Ellen Zilla. But but let's give it a go in Kaoteng and see see how, or in the country nationally, let's see how they do out there. Um, the DA has enormous favorability scores. So this is the, the idea of are you satisfied with how you've been governed? Has life got better under the DA? The DA has got magnificent scores in the Western Cape amongst uh, white voters, amongst Western Cape colored voters, and amongst Indian voters, and, and fine scores amongst what were resident, not immigrant, uh, black voters. But where you have an immigrant voter who came mm -hmm. from, the, especially the Eastern Cape, into the Western Cape in pursuit of a better life for all, the, um, that voter is deeply hostile to the DA. Um, the voter regards the DA as having failed them. And that voter, of course, regards the ANC as having failed them, because you've now immigrated out of an ANC province very often. And as a consequence, late last year, we had the EFF above the ANC in the Western Cape, and the ANC below 10%, meaning that in that province, it is reaching a point where it's virtually ceasing to exist at all. And those wow. immigrant voters have turned EFF, and we, I mean, we'll test these things before the election. But had it been last year, the this, EFF would have been to the ANC in the Western. Right. Sometimes these polls. So, sorry, uh, Jack. Just sometimes these polls uh, give you a bit of insight into human nature more than anything else. Uh, what a bizarre thing to move to a province and then to be hostile to the government of that province when part of the reason you moved there is because they seem to run it better. Mm. Yeah, at, at a level, yeah, absolutely right. But. What you learn doing this work day in and day out is go and figure out why the voter is right. Don't be tempted to write the voter off as a, as a moron, as a sort of, as it can't possibly be. In the Western Cape, the material reality is that under the DA's leadership, living standards have improved markedly. 
in in what were extremely poor colored communities there's been a significant lift in living standards the okay. the most abhorrent appalling living standards which which i do not uh, begrudge or blame the, the province for at all are are black immigrants who live in 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 circumstances in black particularly Eastern Cape immigrants live in, in absolutely terrible circumstances so at, at one level yeah your your observation is is correct at another level voter opinion will very often reflect actual hard material reality and and in that respect the da government in the western cape has a very difficult strategic challenge because mm -hmm. should it succeed there's no control over national policy or, or taxation or labor policy any of sure. these things that are so important to attract investment should it succeed uh, to to a great extent and it, it absolutely i think in, in my experience does does as much as it can to raise the living provide the housing the services to eastern cape immigrants the 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 flow will accelerate and the da in of its own economy doesn't have the resources to be an alternative uh, to to the an alternative economic option for the millions of desperately poor people who live in the in in, in the eastern Cape. um and if you actually just put yourself in that position yeah just you know you sit in these in these meetings, you've got limited resources. Mm. How do you actually assign them um, effectively? And it's very, very difficult. And I think the DA in the Western Cape gets that that balance very right. But one of the consequences of it being a balance is that the DA is going to find it very difficult to crack the Eastern Cape immigrant vote into the province. However, it is a vote that is at a level and and at, at the degree of importance that it's not going to challenge the DA's hegemony in that province, and also in the in the in in the Western Cape, what you do see a a, a vast schism of is is hostility between coloured residents and black immigrants, and you know in our hopelessly politically correct press, you'd never no one ever say this, but it yeah. is present, and you do see as a consequence in part of the inflows a consolidation of colored support behind the da in the western Cape. so that's the best do you know like something seems very strange to me um the idea that people from the eastern cape are now you know migrating to the western cape but have a distrust of the governing uh, the governing party in that province it it seems counterproductive to move to a place where you're searching for a better life and yet have a mistrust of the people that are governing the area what kind of what what motivates that kind of thinking is it sheer desperation or does it still go back to uh, perhaps certain people having the idea that the legacy of apartheid still lives on like what 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 makes people think that way most voter behavior in south africa at its deepest depth is determined by the material circumstances of people mm -hmm. and how those rise and fall and if you are a black immigrant into the western cape you are very much at the bottom of the socio-economic pyramid 
And you live quite often literally in a hole in the ground, which mm. is if, if, you go, if you've knocked up a shack on one of those sand dunes out of a few wooden planks and tin sheets and a road sign that fell over um, in the wind, you, your, your circumstances are, are appalling. And in that environment, you've been betrayed by the ANC that you travel. We'll talk about ANC betrayal and how voters see that later. You've been betrayed by this party that you had such trust in. You've, you've done this, you've left behind people, family, um, kids often to, to make this trek to the Western Cape. When you get there, you encounter significant hostility. Um, uh, from from what, what let's, let's call established Western Cape residents, you're living in this hole in the ground, and and there's this this populist alternative uh, with a very good ground game. These these EFF guys, and and that's what explains it. And um, and and always in in the stuff. To emphasize this again. Always in the stuff. Try and understand why the voter. What was the rational, logical decision? Might not be as rational and logical as you'd like. Mm. What was the rational, logical motivation behind the decision that the voter took? And and you will rarely not find something. Might not be a complete answer, but you will mm. find something. Yeah. Franz, I, I do want to move off the Western Cape. In some ways, they're a huge outlier. Um, I want to look at the rest of the country, and in particular, some of the fascinating results that you found around the the, the, the violence that we had in KwaZulu-Natal, the riots of 2021. So how many South Africans that you surveyed believe that we may get to a point in this country where we get to violent revolution? Because this is something people often, people often talk about it, and they, you know, it's a big boogeyman that they trot out whenever they talk about the Zuma factor in KZN, Whenever they talk about the the, the 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 propensity communities have for violence, what research have you done there, and what results did that research deliver? We we did a lot into into violent protest and protest action generally. So you'd say things like, "Have you ever participated in a protest?" And you know, a minority of people say yes, and and you say, "Have you participated in a violent protest?" A minority of of people say yes, and and you go further along, and you get to a point where you say, "Do you think that?" It may be justified to use violence and as a form of protest where the government doesn't listen to you. And, and our third of South Africans say they think it might be legitimate to use wow. violence about change. That's a lot of people. Doesn't mean they're going to yeah. do it. That's a lot. Far, far greater majority believe you should vote your way to change, which is a point I'll stress for you later on. So I'm actually quite positive about where the country's headed. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you so so third say they 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 believe that violence is could be justified at a future point and then if you say to people do you believe that where you live that there could be a violent detonation um, as there was in Natal then you get a you get now to majorities so majorities of South Africans believe that their communities are vulnerable to that kind of detonation. That's a hell of a thing, you know, Gareth. I mean, it's a hell of a comment on the ANC's governance. Yep, it's very scary. 30 years later, a majority of people think the place might just blow up. doesn't mean they're right, but mm. not in the short to medium term. I think they're wrong in the short to medium term. 
the idea that the thought exists should be scary enough. Well, exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm. It shouldn't even have arisen. You know, At all. Everyone should be, everyone should be living kind of comfortable, low-level, middle-class, uh, rising aspirations, Western liberal democratic lives. And mm-hmm. and the thought shouldn't arise at all, and that's that's absolutely right. Yeah. You know, we've been so conditioned to, I think, poor governance and things that the importance of a of an insight like that are, are completely missed. I mean, it is, you know, you actually just stop and think, what happened that yeah. that view would take hold? Yes. So, France, just if you broke that down and you said, well, you know, these people who believe that we may get to a point where violence becomes a part of the equation. Uh, is there a is there a split politically between the supporters of the EFF, ANC, DA, uh, Freedom Front, all of those? I mean, wh- where are these people mostly coming from, or is it across the board? It's across the board. Middle classes are particularly anxious uh, of this. Uh, poor communities experience this all the time, of course. Now, behind this, there's, there's actual protest data you can measure. And what that shows is that the um, number of protest actions in the country going back a decade or so is up about 500%. And the, but more important, the proportion that are violent has risen from 10 to about 30%. Hmm. Now, that is very important because what we are seeing is the beginning of a protest movement. Now, when this goes 15 years back, now I used to be part of a team and when we got our hands on that early on, it was it was part of the information we used to make a 2012 call that we thought the ANC would lose its majority in 2024. Right. And the reason why that little rise in protest caused us to believe that was this reasoning. Initially, after 94, the ANC did record in the first decade a vast improvement in living standards. It doubled yes. the number of people with jobs. It built 10 formal houses for every shack. If you've seen me ever on YouTube before, you've heard this. Mm-hmm. It did really well. From about 2007-8, that stagnates and living standards stagnate, and then they actually begin to decline in, in many respects. What happened is we saw ANC voters starting to appear in the protest on the protest stage. Now, the there's a political theater, and it has lots of stages, and one of those is you can vote, and then one of those you can protest. These guys rocked up on the protest stage. And that was the ANC's last chance to save itself a decade ago because what those protesters were beginning to say was, was please listen to us. We, we, we were very grateful for the ANC and what it's done, given, you know, the history. But... But things aren't working out, and we need you to pay attention. And the ANC, of course, did not. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it disregarded it. It, it wrote it off. There, there were silly statements by sort of senior policemen and politicians. We won't tolerate this kind of anarchy. The, you know, famously, the police shot Andres Tatane and Fitzberg in the chest with a shotgun virtually live on, on the state broadcaster's evening news bulletin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what you could see is if you saw that kind of thing, <laughs> good Lord, and you saw the, the ANC from close up, you realize they didn't give a damn about mm. what was happening. 
And if you study these things and know them well, you'd know that what's going to happen now is, is the protests are going to get more and they're going to get more intense. So we've made all those calls and absolutely spot on and still part of that team before Natal blew up and we made the call. It's going to blow up in Natal in yep. you know, several times. Made that call. But we didn't think South Africa would descend into a North African conflagration. The mm -hmm. reason for that, the South Africans are very worried about the future. Hang on to this thought a bit. Political change follows the line of least resistance in any society. People will do the easiest thing to change it. You only pick up, pick up a rifle and, and shoot the dictator in a blow-up when every other option has been exhausted. And ANC supporters were resorting to protest because it was the easiest, simplest, lowest energy, uh, lowest cost option they had. But because the ANC utterly disregarded that, what was going to happen is the protest would reach a peak with the cost of the protest for the protest that becomes very high. You know, if you if you if you if you're sort of wealthy and live in a golf estate, for when the country blows up, you you hunker down with cases of Chardonnay and sort of wait. <laughs> if, when you're not that, if, if you live in one of these holes in the ground, which is how you should describe the living standards of a lot of desperately poor people, what happens is your shops are looted in the first evening. You, you can't get hold of basics. You can't go to work anymore. Your kids are out in the streets where they're going to be shot by a policeman. It's horrific what, what happens. It's not just Oh, we waited out, and you know your friend in London says, "Are oh, you able to make it?" But, but France, you said you said but that. Um, you said what happens then? Let, let me finish. Well, sorry, what happens then is the line of least resistance be, becomes new political options and going back to the ballot box. And we have just, I think, hit the peak of the protest. Well, we're near the peak. We'll still increase, but we're near the peak. And we're starting to see a flood of return to the political, the voting stage. And inside the ANC base, it's it's boiling at 50%, we'll get to that. Inside the ANC base today, we can see one-third of its remaining voters. So it's got 50%, so let's say one-third, 17% or so of them. Mm -hmm. One-third are answering every question the same way as the DA supported us. And they mm -hmm. are getting ready, not, not necessarily to go to the DA, but they are no longer ANC supporters. They are now, they're no longer ANC believers. They don't believe in the values. They're now ANC voters only, nothing else. And this protest movement heralded, which it was, has now begun to herald, which it was always due to do, the return to voting. And that you'll see over the next decade as a consequence of which, by the end of this decade, the ANC could easily find itself in the 30s. Or even below that, Gareth. Sorry, I cut you off there. So, no, I, th I think this is fascinating. Um, you you mentioned how we think about the future, and we'll get to that in a second because that's also very telling about how South Africans feel the country is is moving, whether it's in a positive direction or not. Um, but based on what you've just said now, th these people who are slowly they're, they're losing their belief in the ANC, and you said. The return to the polls is going to be. This is good news because for a long time we thought that voters were apathetic, particularly no, no, no. young, particularly young people. We're worried that they're not going to go and vote. They've been dropping off instead of going to vote for the ANC. They've decided just to stay away from the polls. 
So you're saying that that's all going to change. They're not apathetic. Young people aren't. This is a sort of nonsense that happens when you try and do political analysis without any data. It's like being a, a fund manager, but you've never seen, you don't know what the currency is trading at or where the stock market went or what interest rates are. It's as futile. Don't, you can't, it can't actually be done, political analysis without data. Okay. These apathetic voters who don't vote, these youngsters, sure, they don't, they don't register yep. and they don't vote. And so sort of terribly important people. So they're, they're very stupid. You know, they, if they were only more like us, they'd know that they need to vote. So we tested voter opinion and apathy. And what you find is, 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 is quite sobering. So you say to these youngsters, I mean, I, I greatly simplify the process. You know, how do you feel about the country? They say, it absolutely sucks. Will your life get better? My life's going to get worse. And you say to them, well, are you planning to vote? They say, never. They won't vote. <laughs> you say, might that change in the future? And they say, no. And they say, well, to think very hard, will it, will it, is there anything that could happen in the country that would make you vote again? And they say, yeah, if I start to see material circumstances improve, I'd reconsider. And then you say to them, but don't you, 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 you chap sense some sort of contradiction here? On, on the one hand, you say you won't vote, you'll only vote if things get better, but voting is the way to make things better, but you're not going to vote. Isn't there a contradiction? That chap says to you, absolutely right, there's a contradiction. And then he says something that you must have great respect for. He says, when you ask me to vote, you're telling me I must actually trust a small part of myself, invest that in a politician, and say, I truly believe that this person that I'm going to send to high office is going to make my life better. And I've been betrayed so often. These people have lied so much. I'm not prepared to do that. Now, go back to my earlier advice to you. If, if you're living, you're one of these kids, you, you're in a sand dune shack hole in the ground. Mm -hmm. Put yourself in that position. What would the leader of Party X tell you to make you believe that with confidence that within five years of you voting for that person, you will no longer live in that shack? You, you will have a job, you'll be moving. If you cannot do that, it's very difficult to get that youngster to vote for you again. And I think you've got to respect that view. This guy's not apathetic. He's, he's it's just a horrific life and, and massive political betrayal. And so young you, voters are, are going to be, young voters may begin to return if established vote, this is what the hard reality, this is how it will be. Young voters may begin to return at a point where established voters put in in place a um, government that replicates the living standards trends that the ANC secured in its first decade after 1994. Doesn't it seem a little counterproductive, though? Like... <clears throat> 
you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but to my understanding, uh, the the number of young people in this country outnumber everyone else. So we make up the largest portion of the population. Um, wouldn't we be in the best position to change our circumstances through the vote, given just sheer numbers? In the, in the longer term and sort of from the comfort of middle classes and so on, yeah, that's right. I agree. I mean, mm. that, that is true. If we... If we brought into into the room here with us a couple of youngsters, they'd, they'd never had that rubbish education. They've never had the experience of working. They mm. they don't have any asset. They have no no one esteems them. They're not regarded as anything. Mm. They, they live mm-hmm. in a horrible shack in the Eastern Cape. Which politician are you going to tell them now will definitely get you out of that shack if you vote for them next, later in the year? Can't think of one. Right, it's hard, it's hard. Mm. And it's also hard, you know, I mean, there, there are other issues at stake until you have a comfortable national majority that's not the ANC, you don't have control of the national policy to fix that. But you're right, I know you are right, of course you're right, but these kids are also right in in, in what they say. And and that is why they will they will not participate at this stage in the formal process of voting but to think that they're politically disengaged or, or, or don't care or don't understand is, is, is wrong. They're not that. They, they're actually pretty good political analysts, probably better than many of the professional analysts because <laughs> they, they've reached this conclusion. Yeah. So, so, Franz, let's talk about what people think of the future of this country. Are people optimistic generally? Are they pessimistic? Are they somewhere in between? You know, we often have these discussions ourselves trying to figure out what's realistic rather than what's pessimistic and optimistic. What do South Africans feel? And and how do you gauge this? What kind of questions do you ask them to, to ascertain that? You ask a question such as, do you think your life will be better in five or ten years' time? Uh, do you believe okay. the country is moving in the right direction? That, these are great questions. It doesn't matter who you are. Mm. And and the answers are devastating. Um, no. Um, very small minorities of people believe that their lives will be significantly better. Even people who who still vote for the ANC believe that their lives will get better. Uh, so there is a national um, sense of of great depression. I think you the way to think about it is to is to split that into into categories. If you live in, if you're, if you're the chap who lives in the hole in the ground, on the five-year view, mm-hmm. you're completely right because it's not going to get substantively better for you. I mean, there's no point in lying to the person and saying it will. Yeah. However, if you sit in the relative comfort of the middle classes, the situation is far more complex, even though the depression is perhaps as advanced. Number one, we are a free society in which the political process is working exactly as it was designed to and working well. There you read this stuff, nonsense again, the political system's failing, failed mm-hmm. 
democracy was didn't work, 94 was a mistake. No, that's completely wrong. We became a democracy in 94 so that if we reached a point where we were badly governed and the government didn't care, people would have the ability to change it. We are very far down that road. The, 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 the cities have all fallen to the opposition, or they could, depending on how the negotiations work. The, if, if, if only urban people voted, the ANC would get 30% today. Wow. Amongst um, people who have uh, uh, graduated high school or have a job or own anything, the ANC is way below 50%. It's lost that aspirant and established middle-class market irrevocably, and it will never get it back again, not the way that it behaves. So, so would, you say, would you say if you met someone and they have even 20 rand in their wallet, they're probably not voting ANC? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, uh, it's certainly these days but perhaps a bit more than 20 rand but yes your, your sense is correct and and horrible if you're an ANC strategist you know so just sure. you put yourself in the position the 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 very manifestation of the better life for all which was the ANC's promise its campaign yes. 94 fills the ranks of the opposition now not because that was necessarily the case needed to be the case I'll put it some ANC people, is because your yeah. behavior is so abhorrent that yeah. to any person with middle-class interests, they cannot possibly support you. It's not wasn't inevitably the case if you improved life, everyone would vote for the opposition. You improved life, gave people something to lose, behaved terribly, and so they go to the opposition. So number one, we're a free society. That puts us in a minority of comparable emerging markets in terms of the options open to us to change from a corrupt and incompetent government. For many others in our position, the options were, were violence, fighting, in, in shooting people in the streets. Yeah. Uh, I, I often when when you know you, you you talk to a client or something and, and they sort of in the tower in Santon and say this is couldn't be worse. I said, we're not in Hampton today discussing how to get John Cianazen out of prison because he's been locked yeah. up by the Gestapo. We yeah. are way past that. So we've got an easy avenue to change, and we are way down that road already. The country's changing very fast, uh, and it mustn't change too fast, and maybe we can come revisit that sort of... Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe that's actually a good place for us to just depart to what a lot of people really ask you and want to know from you. And, you know, people want the short, sharp answer. They want to be able to say at a dinner party, well, the ANC are going to get this much in the election that's coming up. And the EFF are going to get this much. And the DA are going to get this much. And these are the polls that people really care about. Because, first of all, makes them sound smart, even though they haven't dug deep into any of the detail. Mm -hmm. But second of all, it gives you an idea of a trend. So, famously, you've said in the research that the ANC is wounded, but not slain. So let's look at what, what they're tracking on at the moment and, and what your polls tell us, what your research tells us about what voters are likely to do in the upcoming election and how those numbers break down. At the moment, but we have months to go before the election and these things will change. That's why we'll continue to measure them. Sure. At the moment, um, in line with the averages of last year, you have the ANC just short of 
Um, 46, 47, 48. Okay. The DA has recovered from 2019, and it can hit 25, 26, 27. It's done, it's mm. done pretty well. Yeah. The EFF struggles to break well north of 10%. So it, it's, it's it, it, in some parts it's, it's hit just below 10, can do 12, 13, 14%. That's where we're at at the moment. But in Gauteng, the ANC is in the 30s. And there have been days when the DA has beaten the ANC in a Gauteng poll. In KZN, the ANC is in the low 40s, down from right. 52 or 54 last That's time. surprising. Yeah, well, they're going to lose those two. Mm. Well, <laughs> Mr. Ramaphosa is hated in KZN. I mean, that's that's what... And Mr. Mr. Zuma is a conquering hero. I mean, right. Zuma's favorability score in KZN. So actually, I've got some of this stuff on another screen. I might find it for you. Is yeah. is off the charts popular? Um, Mr. Ramaphosa's score in KZN is very very small. So they're going to lose Kaoting, and we're going to go to coalition, coalition negotiation, and they're mm-hmm. going to lose KZN, and we're going to go to coalition. KZN, wow. sort of DA, EFF, and someone else is an option. I mean DA, IFP, someone else becomes an option. ANC, IFP becomes an option. But if you're the ANC and you mess with the IFP, they're taking the tail away from you, tell you you can't have it, because those IFP guys are super sharp. Mm. They're not, they, there's a high-caliber organization and, and some high-caliber thinking there. In Gauteng, okay. usually the collective ANC EFF number is below 50. So you mm. can't make a deal with the EFF to get Gauteng. But if, you, if you're below 50 nationally and you try and make a deal with the EFF, um, but it doesn't work for you in Gauteng, the opposition takes that away from you. Mm-hmm. And, and if, 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 if you're not sure where I'm going with this, I've done it well, because the, the, the potential combinations and their implications now, so make a deal with the EFF at a national level. IFP might tell you to bugger off. We're not into that. So we're not giving you an attack. So you can try and govern without Natal. The, the, the complexities and, and the leverage afforded is, is quite staggering. What it all shows is that if the ANC doesn't wake up, it's going to become a regional party centered in northwest Mpumalanga and Limpopo where it will spend its final years engaged in a battle to the death, sometimes literally, with the EFF for domination. And it will become a rural party of backwaters and dusty scrublands, and it will have its last conference on, in a marquee in Botswana border as the dust swirls around it and the ANC elders tell the few youngsters who bother to arrive, you know, once we were great, and we ruled South Africa. Good doctor. So it the, sounds like it sounds like you you you're painting this amazing picture in my mind. I I can't wait for your words to become a reality. Ah. Well, but think, think where where we're at already. 
Mm. Um, I think where we're at already. I, All right. So the national, you, the you, you, is one thing. The national picture is one thing. Mm. I think the ANC at the moment could be in the high 40s, so it could get two or three rats and mice and just pull itself over 50% and cling on to a national majority. But that's that's the equation without understanding the complexity of taking Gauteng and KZN away from it and the Western Cape. It's going to win the Northern Cape, but it's going to be on the threshold. And if you're the ANC without Gauteng and without KZN, look what happened to them in the Western Cape. We spoke about that earlier today, mm-hmm. where they lost the province and now they've slipped to below 10%. They're being beaten by the EFF. The ANC, with you know, the, the ANC's got this kind of, its 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 power is more apparent than real. It's trading on its past. This great, powerful organization, Africa's greatest liberation movement, Mandela's Rainbow Nation, the sort of leader of nations. When, when the mask is torn away, as it's been in the Western Cape, and you realize that these guys are pretty pathetic, mm-hmm. the support just absolutely tanks. And if the ANC does not get its hooks into a coalition deal in KZN and Gauteng, it will accelerate its demise. And and and, and something you, you say, I paint this picture, I'm simply following the line of evidence. Mm. And you will mm. agree with me that very few political analysts anticipate in advance dramatic changes in the conditions of countries or economies. They're always surprised by it. Didn't see it coming. North Africa, global financial crisis, the African 94. The reason is that they are not bold enough to take the nascent initial trends in the data and and on the balance of probabilities say this is, and, and with a proper appreciation of history, the likely evolution. And um and I the, the risk in in, in, in in even what I'm saying to you, saying earlier, I think the ANC can go down to the 30s in, in, by 2029, is to vastly overstate their strength. And once, just, imagine, just imagine that. The ANC, when the mask is withdrawn and people realize it's not powerful at all, and it's actually pretty pathetic, how quickly the evacuation of support out of that party could accelerate. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So where where's where's the support going to go? Because I think this there are a lot of you call them rats and mice parties, and there really are extra you know part, part, parties that have come onto the ballot. And I mean, who knows how long this ballot paper is going to be at this point? Oh. People are asking in the comments about Rizem Zanzi. People are asking about Gate and McKenzie. People are asking about uh, the uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Bosa with um, Musi Maimani. Who should we be looking at? Very easy. The answer lies in front of you. We're a free society. If we remain that, and I think we probably will, although it's not a shirt, the politics will reflect the structure of the society and its cultures. Not, not narrowly ethnically defined, but its political cultures. The reason why we, we, we used to think in terms of a big majority party that could tell us all what to do is because for 400 years, people were not free to choose their leaders. 
Right. The ANC's dominance after 94 was a continuation, just the momentum that was always due to break up the, this moment when lived experience of apartheid was overwhelmed by concern at current material circumstances. We're not at that point. So the politics will evolve to reflect the society and it will therefore look like this. We will have a party, probably it might be the biggest or will rival for the biggest, got about 30% of the vote that represents the cosmopolitan, urban, aspirant, emerging and established middle classes. They live in cities, they have jobs, they're quite well educated. Um, the DA is cornering that market. Our second party, it might be a bit smaller than that one, it might be a bit bigger, it's going to have 25 to 30%, will represent the people that sit on the fringes of that world. It will be a poorer voter, uh, it will be a more Africanist, slightly nationalist party, and you will, will track its existence to, um, well, Either it will be the ANC or it will be what happened in the aftermath of the collapse of the ANC. Right. The third biggest party will be about a 10 to 15% radical left party um, of sort of students, youngsters. You know, students can, can get very carried away sometimes at universities. In, in the 1960s, the students weren't down Paris. And these radical kind of idealistic Marxist activists they go through that phase until they get a job at, at Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. And then they suddenly <laughs> decide. Well, they, my dad, they, they, they pretend they become these champagne sort of revolutionaries. That's going to have about 15%. And I've given you 30 in, in this cosmopolitan group, a 30 in the Africanist group, that's 60. 15 in the leftist, that's 75. 25 is going to be a wide array of special interest parties. So mm -hmm. there might be some ethno-nationalist ones, language-based, that sort of thing, what, what Mr. Zuma is trying to create in Natal. Mm. There'll be a couple of those. There'll be some, some religious right parties and some Islamist parties and, you know, the, the, the anti-vaxxer and reptiles live on the moon party. And these parties <laughs> will have 1 to 2 to 3 to 4% each. And they're going to make up the balance of the 25. And out of that, we will craft the government. Which means, and you say this to a bank here, they they pulled, so can't get a dictator, someone who, who the CEO can talk to and decide how to govern the country. But that's because they live in, in this past South Africa, which is coming to an end. And there's this new fragmented politics, because that's what the country looks like. And it's normal, because most of the world is governed like this. In, in, the, in the Bundestag, the biggest party has 20 or 30%. In the Knesset in Israel, it's the same, and lots of tiny little ones. And you make these deals and negotiations, and it's a bit messy, and it can be shambolic. And, and South Africans, the middle-class South Africans, who say the world has ended, we've fallen off the precipice, the end is upon us, as, as a gaze out onto the golf course. Yeah. The, the, the answer to them is that, yes, it is shambolic, like we saw in Johannesburg. Yeah. But, but be grateful that, that we're not shooting at each other in the streets.
because that is how other emerging markets that got into serious trouble had to bring about the political change. And so I was telling you why I'm optimistic. One, the political system actually works because it saves us from that. We must be grateful. Yeah. Second reason I'm optimistic is public opinion, contrary to what you read in the mainstream media, is centrist and pragmatic. Eight out of ten South Africans agree on the core of values and ideas that are needed for the country to be a success. And we are very Good. lucky that's the case. It could have been different. They yeah. agree. Thirdly, the ANC, as hopeless as it is, and, and you know, I mean, you don't say more, it, it, it's not printing money. And that is remarkable because the playbook, if you're a Marxist-inspired Soviet East German house African liberation movement that came to power after colonial rule and faced losing power, you turned to the printing press. And the reason you did that is you wanted to create inflation. And you wanted to create inflation because you would destroy living standards. And you'd create mass anger and populism. You could harness that to destroy the political system and become a dictator. The ANC is not printing vast volumes of money out of, in its corners, a sensible and pragmatic and sort of decent understanding of the damage that this would do, even though it might offer it a short-term lifeline. Between these factors, and there are others, if you're sitting, not, not in a hole in the ground, your life is terrible. But if you're in, in the comfortable South African middle classes, we've got these three cards to play. Peaceful and democratic change, if we invest in it. Pragmatic populace, and at this stage, not, not, not Disneyland economics. Mm -hmm. If we cling to these three resources and invest in them and guard them and make sure they're not taken away by people who would to do so then on then on the balance not to hope or fear take those ideas away then on the balance of probabilities the odds are that south africa is going to have a much better uh, 10 to 20 years ahead of it than what it's the 10 years behind it at the very least what i'd say and i, I i'm not saying all eggs in the basket and Kumbaya and wonderful place. I'm not that guy. You know that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure. Hard. At the very least, what what I'm attempting to convey here, you you must concede, is that if you're that middle class person, you're thinking, do I have a future here? Should I stay? Should I go? The decision you've got to make is quite a complex and complicated decision. It's not as easy. Yeah, it's down the tubes, it's finished, it's flee to the Australian outback or the northern wilds of Canada. It's not as easy as that. And it actually requires some careful thinking about whether the decision to exit South Africa, which lots of the middle classes think about, whether that is actually in material terms the correct decision to make now, or whether the, the country, in fact, on, on the evidence, is, has been through a very harsh period and potentially has a significant upside ahead of it. That's that's very good news. Yes, it is. All right. So, so I mean, a lot of this, obviously, you've got to interpret through 
the, the lens of where we're at. And you said quite rightly, this is going to change over the next few weeks and months up to the elections. You're going to be paying attention to those changes and you're going to be giving us some, some updates in the, the reports from the Social Research Foundation. Are there any big warning signs or any gaps in your, in your research so far that you're going to fill in those next couple of weeks. I mean, we've, we've seen the emergence of Jacob Zuma's party, this, um, well, the Kontoessi's party, which he's supporting. Do you feel that they're going to play a major role and what will they do to the ANC? Look, we sent a team into the field yesterday to go and answer that question. Um, okay. My thoughts ahead of that, because we, we've got a lot of data on Zuma and so on, is sure. that the if, look, look, popularity, favorability in politics is one thing. It doesn't translate into votes. In the absence of, in the middle, between favorability and an election, you need a very good marketing department and ground game. So Zuma, if Zuma develops that, given what he could potentially do in Natal, he maxes out nationally at about 4 or 5%. Now, that's enormous. Because that means mm. he, he, he's pushing the ANC close to 40 and, and we accelerate all, all these very complex equations, negotiations that I spoke to you about. We, we think without that, he can max out at about 1%. But over the weekend, we actually, we were quite confident in this. And over the weekend, we thought to ourselves, you know, let's just go and see. So we put a thorough sample into Natal that started now to go and test exactly this question, what will happen with him. I don't think, though, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident, though, Gareth, that I don't think there are massive blind spots that we have missed, that the political trends that we are seeing are likely, are, are so powerful and informed by such powerful socioeconomic trends that if we remain a free society, the trajectory I've set out for you today will likely continue. The only, and, and, and be realized to some extent, if someone later says I'm wrong, then the following will have happened. Either money was printed in a desperate attempt to hold back the inevitable defeat of the ANC. And as a consequence of the printing of the money, the ANC and the EFF in coalition together were able to completely destroy the democratic infrastructure, constitutional order and the rule of law. And we never got to another free election. And it's because we couldn't have that election, mm. properly free one, that the, the, the picture I've uh, sketched for you today didn't realize itself. And the, the, there's a risk there, of course, that that might happen. I'm, I'm not naive on it. I think you should be well hedged on South Africa because of the seriousness of that risk. But I think that if the ANC and EFF get into coalition later in this year and, and try to do that, it will be more difficult for them to succeed in pulling it off because they need to get to the end goal, not another free election. It will be more difficult for them to pull that off than it will be for South Africa's battle-hardened and very well-resourced 
uh, and a future, but even better resource, civil society movement, to stop them from getting to that ultimate point. You know, this is, we, we're also fortunate in the ANC in this regard that it doesn't preside over a competent civil service. To become a fascist dictatorship, which some of its leaders would consider to head off defeat in a free election, you need a very efficient civil service and security infrastructure to, to create the reign of terror to secure that. Now, the, the EFF chaps have the drive and commitment to do so. I don't think it's to the same extent in the ANC. They don't have the civil service to pull it off, and they're up against this battle-hardened civil society. Therefore, again, on, on, on the balance of probabilities, even if the two attempt that, the con it can be seen off, and the consequences, the economic consequences of their attempt will be the final straw for that 30% of doubting ANC voters to say we actually have to break to the opposition now and that the EFF-ANC run at the Constitution becomes the midwife of birthing a centrist uh, coalition administration. You know, not, not for assured. nothing. Not, not for nothing. Don't any of these things are assured. Not for nothing. Don't think any of these things are assured. Don't, don't go home and be complacent. Things are all going to be okay. Mm. But not necessarily so. I'm just saying the, the cards we have now mean that if we play them correctly, the upside outcome I've sketched for you mm -hmm. has, becomes very plausible. That's That's the point I wish to make to you this morning. Yeah, as I was saying, Doc, like the 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 picture you painted a, lo a little earlier on where the NC is like a small town party and whatnot, that's what I'm leaning towards. And I hope our listeners and viewers are holding on to that message too. Because I think we are uniquely positioned to bring about the change that you mentioned earlier on. I think most, most South Africans have wisened up to exactly how how much manipulation and uh, nonsense has been thrown in our direction as a result of the actions of the governing party. So I think, the, the, you know, the more optimistic view that you had a little earlier on will, will be the one that comes to fruition, in my humble opinion. Yes, I hope you're right. Mm. Well, I, I, would, I would very much uh, encourage every other political analyst, uh, including you and I, Jack, to yep. pay more attention to the, the the statistical data, the actual empirical evidence that France has proffered for us this morning. And I'm, I'm excited to see some of these scenarios play out uh, over the next couple of weeks, France. Uh, also, it has to be said, you did mention that you guys were on the money when it came to the, 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 the riots in KZN. You've been on the money with so many of your other polls. Uh, you're very seldom incorrect. So this is this is useful info. You've got a track record of being right, and I think that people need to take this stuff and uh, and input it uh, to the to whatever their their personal model is. Like this is how I see myself going forward in South Africa. Also, what their political ambitions might be uh, for people who are supporting a party, for people who are thinking about what kinds of principles they want a government of the future to have. Because all of this is now in the balance. It's very exciting. Thank you, France. Gentlemen, thank you. A pleasure. I really thank you enjoyed so it. much. Thank you. Yeah, this is really insightful. Very, very good.
Thank you, Franz Cronier, and uh, the, the the amazing research that they've been doing. Just in case you want to know, it's called the Social Research Foundation, and uh, they are a South African think tank established back in 2021 to promote democracy and sound public policy. I see a couple of people asking here in the comments about the IRR. That was the Institute for Race Relations. France was there before, um, some time ago now. It's been quite a while, so this is new. And they do this research, as he said, by phone, and they're doing, uh, you know, thousands of people. They're asking them their opinions and all kinds of things, and then giving us the results, which is fascinating. Yeah. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we will see you on Democracy 101 in a week from now, but we'll see you on the show again with our interview tomorrow to Miss Graham Codrington. Cheers. Be good. Cliffcentral.com.